to our audience uh, here in China and elsewhere. Also, good evening to Professor Lawrence Summers in America. Welcome to CCG Global Dialogue, live from CCG head office here in Beijing. Uh, thank you for tuning in with uh, uh, today this uh, fascinating uh, uh, guest that we're having from uh, uh, U.S. To, to, to really talk about the, discuss, uh, the, the trend and also uh, global economy and key issues in China-U.S. relations. So let me quickly introduce our key guest today. Professor Laura Summers <laughs> has enjoyed a distinguished career spanning over four decades of one of the American leading economists in both academy and uh, government. In addition to serving as the 71st uh, Secretary of the Treasury in Clinton administration, Dr. Summers served as the Director of the White House National Economic Council in the Obama administration, and also as the President of Harvard University and Chief Economist of World Bank. Dr. Summer has played a key role in addressing every major financial crisis in the last two decades. For example, as one of the President Obama's chief economy advisors, Dr. Summer's thinking helped shape the U.S. response to the 2008 financial crisis. Currently, Dr. Summers is the President of Amherst at the Charles W. Elliott University Professor at Harvard University, where he became a full professor at age of 20. 28, one of the youngest in Harvard recent history. He was elected to the National Academy of Science in 2002 and has been recognized as one of the world's most influential thinkers by Time, The Economist magazine, and among many others. Uh, in 2011, I visited actually Professor Summers when I was a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, and he wrote uh, uh, a recommendation actually for my book on Harvard experience of Harvard Kennedy School and revolution of its talent training exercise, the path of a public management elite at Harvard. And uh, I was very uh, grateful that you wrote actually with public management as important as any field, with China as important as any country, best wishes from Harvard for public management in China. Uh, you know, Lawrence Summers. So thank you again. And also in 2019, uh, Professor Summers uh, visited the CCG Beijing office and gave a speech here. So it's good to see you again, uh, Professor Summers. And let's begin our discussion. It's a real privilege to be here with uh, you. I have followed uh, the work of CCG for a long time, and I think the kind of dialogues that you sponsor may not always result in agreement, but they do pr produce greater understanding between China and the rest of the world, and I think that's immensely important at a moment like this. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Larry. I, I think you are really, you know, the global appealing leaders actually, uh, you know, taking uh, the world actually uh, in many uh, assessment. Uh, we 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 know that uh, that uh, we are at uh, you know critical time of this pandemic fighting the global economy, and uh, you actually introduced the idea of a circular stagnation in 2013 uh, to explain a combination of a long period of easy or ultra easy monetary policy with with weak demand and a disappointing growth. Uh, in favor of a less re re resilience of the monetary policy and more act 
active physical policy. We know that uh, the U.S. Uh, inflation is uh, is hitting probably a new time high now, and so as the largest economy in the world, uh, what what do you see the uh, the uh, you know the U.S. economy uh, in January, and then we would probably talk a bit about uh, global economy. But since you are you are so uh, familiar with the with the U.S. and global economy, I mean, to, you know, in response to this pandemic, you know, the the Fed and the U.S. government was actually able. Uh, to provide, uh, uh, you know, trying to avoid this secular uh, stagnation problem that you pointed out in 2013. So, so what's your general overview of, of the U.S. economy and also how we can avoid this stagnation problem? So let me describe my view prior to the pandemic, my view during the pandemic, and then my view after uh, the pandemic. What I foresaw in 2013 was that the world economy had changed quite profoundly. That instead of the issue being too much demand colliding with insufficient supply, that there was so much desire to save for retirement, so much wealth going to very affluent people, so much reduction in the price of capital goods, particularly those involved with information uh, technology, and such profound demographic change towards much slower labor force growth that I felt that the challenge was going to be a chronic excess of saving. And I felt that the traditional mechanism of adjustment based on interest rates was going to be problematic. I wasn't sure that reducing interest rates from low to extremely low would actually stimulate that much more demand. I worried that excessively low interest rates would actually lead uh, to um, more financial instability and financial uh, bubbles. And so I felt that what we were likely to see was low interest rates, sluggish growth, and very limited inflation reflecting the sluggish growth. And I think that's a pretty good description of the industrial world from the period after the financial crisis up until COVID. When COVID hit, I had a strong recommendation. That strong recommendation was that we do everything we can to contain the spread of uh, COVID and that we very substantially support incomes and demand. And that's (laughs) what the United States did in uh, 2020 very, very successfully. By the time we got to 2021, it was pretty clear that the U.S. economy, anyway, was recovering and recovering at a fairly rapid rate. And so I looked and I saw that our level of income was perhaps 30 to $50 billion short of the economy's potential. And I felt that it was important to close that gap. What we actually did was not 
$50 billion a month of stimulus, but more like $200 billion a month of stimulus. And at the same time, we ran extremely expansionary monetary policy and had the Federal Reserve grow its balance sheet very, very rapidly. The result, I predicted at the end of, at the beginning of 2021, was that we would have substantial inflation because the bathtub would overflow. There was more water flowing in, in the form of demand, than there was capacity of the economy to produce, especially given the various distortions and destructions and implications of uh, the pandemic. And that's, in fact, what has happened. You can debate exactly what the role of supply and what the role of demand has been. But what's clear when you get to 7% inflation is that demand is running very, very strong relative to supply. And that unless an effort is made successfully to balance supply and demand, we will have continuing high inflation and possibly even accelerating inflation. And therefore, it was my view going back to last spring that monetary policy needed to start adjusting its path to recognize that overheating was our economic problem. And that fiscal policy needed to be conducted in ways that would reduce stimulus rather than increase uh, stimulus. Unfortunately, my advice was a minority opinion, and policymakers followed what was a majority consensus opinion, that inflation would be entirely transitory and wouldn't be a serious problem. And so we now find ourselves with much more rapid wage growth, much more rapid uh, price growth, and a great deal of anxiety about inflation. That's the situation in the United States. Uh, Something similar obtains in uh, Britain and in uh, Canada. The priority now, in my view, has to be on reducing the overheating of uh, the economy. That's going to make a set of substantial challenges for the Federal Reserve because historical experience suggests that it is very difficult to slow the economy down gradually in a way that causes meaningful um, disinflation. That's why my suspicion is that the consensus forecast that we will enjoy inflation below 3% with with unemployment significantly below 4%, I don't think is likely to obtain. I do think that one of the puzzles in the marketplace right now is that even though the government has borrowed on a very substantial uh, scale, markets expect that this whole episode will end with interest rates below 2%. And maybe 
that will be uh, what uh, works out. But my own best guess would be that it will be necessary for interest rates to rise significantly more if we're going to have the economy avoid protracted inflation well above the 2% uh, target. Um, I do think that the fact that real interest rates for 10 years, even for 30 years, are negative is telling us something quite profound, which is that secular stagnation is something that is in remission, not something that has been ultimately cured. And I think that we are going to have to think very hard about the right kinds of policy approaches for the medium term. But if we don't deal with the inflation that we have right now, I think we're likely to have even larger problems uh, in the future. Yeah, th- thank you. Thank you, Larry. I think you, you outlined very well. <laughs> uh, thank you for your uh, clarify on that. Uh, you, you can see now the U.S. consumer price has been increasing at a fast pace. Uh, you know, uh, also resulted in the high cost of living and, uh, and actually the annual inflation rate in the U.S. has scored to the 40 years new high in the, in the last months of uh, 2021, accelerating to 7%. So, 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 so that, you know, will probably, uh, uh impact the world, uh, uh, and also, of course, the U.S. economy. Uh, so that's probably every, every country is watching on that. And uh, again, uh, let's talk a bit on the, on the, on the world economy. Actually, uh, you know, last, uh, you know, about 10 days ago, we had a, a event with the World Bank. Uh, the new Prospect uh, Global Economy Report uh, was released uh, with, with CCG and the World Bank uh, outside Washington. For only event outside uh, Washington, D.C., uh, World Bank. Basically, the World, uh, the World Bank actually uh, has, uh, you know, suggested uh, 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 quite a bit of uh, uh, economic growth projection. Uh, so the, the forecast on the global economy growth will be, uh, uh, you know, uh, at uh, 4.1 last year, uh, uh, no, 4.1 at uh, 2022 and 3.2 in 2023. And China's forecast was to be 5.1 in 2022 and 5.3 in 2023. So, so with this pandemic, you know, really hurt all of us. Uh, how do you see, you know, we, we can, uh, uh, the world economy get out of this and, uh, uh, the manufacturing, uh, uh, activity and, and, and performance. Actually, China was pretty strong. I mean, China's exports, uh, uh, in 2021 has grown almost 30%. Uh, compared with previous years. So you see, uh, the world probably is still recovering from manufacturing, but China is supplying the world with import export has gone up 30%, uh, all historic record high. So, so what, what do you see the world economy out of this, uh, uh, you know, stagnation of, uh, you know, inflation in the U.S. and then, uh, you know, what, what, what's, uh, you know, the World Bank actually lowered the forecast for uh, all the economies? Let me, um, let me say, Henry, that I have, learn to have enormous respect for China and for Chinese policymakers and people from the West who see problems and then think that China is going to run into all kinds of difficulty, have a history of 
not turning out to be right. So it's very difficult to judge what's going to happen in China. That said, I think that China faces three major challenges over the next two years that are going to take enormous skill to deal with. The first is the exit to normal from COVID. In the United States, um, we have a population where half the people in the United States have had uh, COVID. Um, I have COVID as I'm speaking uh, to you, fortunately, a very mild uh, uh, case. So I am having no difficulty participating in the conversation um, by uh, Zoom. But that fact, Um, and our use of mRNA vaccines means that we have the capacity to manage COVID moving from endemic to pandemic. Excuse me, from pandemic to uh, endemic, from it becoming a relatively normal part of life in the same way that the flu is a relatively normal uh, part of life. I think the challenges for China, given that China hasn't had mRNA vaccines on a very large scale, and given that China has had this remarkable success so far with its lockdown policies of making a transition back to normality, is going to be a very important challenge uh, for China. I think the second very important challenge for China is going to be where is the demand going to come from? China is an extraordinarily high-saving country. If you look at personal consumption relative to GDP, China's number on some indicators is below 40%. That's less than the United States was when we were fully mobilized for World War II. Um, The question is, where is all that saving going to go? And there have been periods when all that saving went into exports, but I think the rest of the world is going to have limits on its willingness to accept large-scale Chinese trade surpluses. There have been periods when it has gone into infrastructure, But China, having laid more concrete between 2010 and 2014 than America did in the whole 20th century, (laughs) has got a pretty splendid infrastructure, and there's a limited capacity for new infrastructure projects. For a significant time, it's gone into real estate, but we're seeing substantial financial excess in the Chinese real estate sector with Evergrande. And so the question of how is China going to manage its saving is, I think, a very substantial uncertainty going forward. I think the third uncertainty, and it's the one that an outsider like me can speak to with the least uh, confidence, is that the extraordinary uniqueness of the Chinese economic system has much to do with the very special role of the party 
and the very large role of uh, state enterprises. And on the one hand, that has led to a very great capacity for coordination. On the other hand, it has led to substantial political elements uh, in the economy. And the question of balancing state and market going forward in a period where it appears that the state is wanting to assert a greater control, both through more channeling of capital to state enterprises and more extensive regulation of private uh, enterprises, what that will mean for initiative, entrepreneurship, and growth is, I think, not entirely clear. So I think that just as we have substantial challenges in the years ahead, China has uh, substantial challenges. I was interested when uh, President Xi, a couple of days ago, in a speech, made reference to the challenges for the World Bank, uh, not for the World Bank, for the world economy of significantly increasing interest rates. And I think we're going likely to have significantly increasing interest rates if growth continues, if we want that growth not to translate into excessive inflation. And we're going to have to think about the consequences of all of that for some of the poorest countries in the world that have taken on very substantial debt, both because of the low interest rates and because of the challenges associated with uh, COVID. So my hope would be that just as we did during the Asian financial crisis and just as we did in 2008, there can be substantial cooperation between the United States and China in international financial policy, and especially in the issues facing debtor countries. Excellent. Uh, great, actually, uh, Larry. I think you have <laughs> spoke well. I mean, you, you, you talk about the, the challenges of first uh, U.S. face, but now, you know, we talk about China as well. I, I think you point out three, uh, you know, uh, point that, uh, you know, how, how we hang, strike a balance be, between this zero tolerance and open up the open up the economy and to the world traffic, uh, <laughs> you know, so people can start to come. China is now having this Beijing Winter Olympic now. I think we are experimenting some of those openness and hopefully we will get more uh, get into uh, international pattern uh, as time goes on. Uh, uh, of, of course, second, you mentioned about this, uh, you know, the potential risk of Chinese economy. I think that uh, China now, the digital economy, the uh, the synergy, the infrastructure, the uh, all those things play a lot of role. Uh, which uh, particularly uh, uh, the uh, uh, SME as is still uh, quite active. I, I think you're right, but you know, in China, it's, it's a unique model. You know, where SOE play a lot of role, but that particularly, uh, you know, regarded as one of China's strengths now, because for example. Uh, during the Wuhan crisis, we have a 40,000 medical staff parachute to, to Wuhan. It's all from SOE sectors. And, uh, and also build, the China builds two-thirds of the global high-speed railways because of the uh, SOE sector. So, so there are some, uh, you know, uh, when you have to, you know, China Telecom or China Qualicom has to uh, 
uh, you know, uh, uh, giving the low rate to the rural areas so that uh, SOE can play some, some role as well. But, but of course, there's a challenge. How do we can really stimulate entrepreneurship and strike a balance? Uh, You're absolutely right. You know, we, we need to find that balance uh, there. Uh, now, you, you talk about infrastructure. Also, you, you talk about the World Bank. And um, I'm thinking now, uh, since you, you were... <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, was a chief economist of World Bank. I mean, World Bank, I mean, developed bank has played a lot of role in terms of uh, changing the world. Uh, even, you know, World Bank, many projects in China was very successful. Uh, do, what do you think about, you know, the challenge now the world is facing? I mean, infrastructure, it seems to be probably one of the biggest uh, uh, common <laughs> consensus now. U.S. is proposing infrastructure plan. EU has launched a 3,000 billion Euro, uh, 300 billion euro, <laughs> euro gateway. And we know that the Second World War, you know, when, when there's a crisis, catastrophe, the, the, the reimburse of the Britain Wood system, uh, you are very familiar with, you know, World Bank and the IMF, uh, uh, World WTO, GATT, you know, that supported the, the world going for, for 20, <laughs> 76, 77 years out. Uh, but at that time, the world population was 2.5 billion. Today's, you know, uh, uh, 7.8 billion. So what do you think about uh, we can, uh, you know, let let the development plan, you know, there's 500 development banks, you know, maybe account 10% of global uh, investment. China has AIB, uh, US has World Bank, Japan has uh, uh, ADB. Let's get AFDB, you know, Inter-American Development Bank, Euro Construction Bank. Every bank maybe can work together for the infrastructure so that we can survive the, uh, the next uh, half century uh, for the prosperity for the developing countries and so that we have a big pie to work with among China, EU, and U.S. so that we can probably even set a international development alliance tackling this issue, have a you know, joint project, co-financing. And as you said, let's you know, get all those international activities, global governance, uh, improve, enhance, so that we can really avoid this geopolitical conflict. What, what do you think about those uh, things that we can do together yeah, you know, as your authority on World Bank as well? I very much like to tell the story of the meeting that President Reagan had with <coughs> Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev in 1985. They went for a walk together, just the two of them, with only their interpreters. And at one point, out of, out of nowhere, President Reagan said to Mikhail Gorbachev, if the Martians came and attacked the United States, would you help defend us? And Premier Gorbachev looked very surprised, laughed, and said, of course we would. If if Martians came and attacked the USSR, would you come to defend us? And President Reagan laughed and said that, of course, he would. And after that, after that moment, their relationship was a much better one. Well, I don't expect that there will be any attack on the United States or China or anyone else on Earth from Mars. 
But I do think that humanity and our planet is existentially challenged in a way that it never has been before by climate change, by pandemic uh, disease, by threats of nuclear proliferation and terrorism. And so I think that we do have common adversaries. And I think that international relations for thousands of years has been about balancing power in a stable way. And that continues to be very important. But it is also about achieving cooperation with respect to threats that endanger all. And I believe that that's why there needs to be a rethinking, a replenishing, and a renewing of the development of banking uh, system. And I believe that responsibility for that rethinking, replenishing, and renewing has to rest with the two great economic powers in the world, China and uh, the United States. And I believe that cooperation in the development banks can be an important part of what President Xi has called a different kind of great power relationship. What does that mean? I believe that the World Bank should no longer be named the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. The most important investments that need to be made are investments in sustainability, in green infrastructure and architecture, and in global public goods. And it needs to be much more engaged in financing them, not just on its own, but with partners from the private sector, partners from national development banks. And it needs to pursue a common agenda of all nations and be a place where nations cooperate together. The World Bank, I believe, should be at the tip of the armada, but it certainly should not be the only ship in the armada. I look forward to the day when the United States will be able to join the AIIB, which under President Jin, I think, has done a splendid uh, job uh, in uh, its uh, early years. If you look at the scale of the world's development banks relative to the scale of the world economy, particularly the World Bank, it has lost ground very, very substantially. And so I believe that the decision taken during the Trump years that the World Bank would receive a capital increase that was its last capital increase was a grave error and that it should be a major priority 
to recapitalize the development banking system and to use the power of modern finance to make sure we're getting maximum development bang for the buck from all of uh, the development uh, banks. I also believe that if we can agree on the objective of sustainability, substantial replenishing of funds, much greater cooperation with the private sector, we can renew the development banks for a very different era than the one that has come before. There was a time when the development banks were very much in the business, for example, of financing tourist hotels. The world now has very strong capital markets, and we don't need development banks to finance tourist hotels. We need development banks to finance the investments that are central for global challenges. And I believe that can be an enormously important project on which China and the United States can cooperate, even if they do have major differences on technology, major differences on the geopolitics of the Pacific region. I don't think there's anybody who is in favor of more evolution of COVID and more people left unvaccinated. I don't think there's anyone who's in favor of a higher rather than a lower global temperature. And so my hope would be that this could become an important ambit of uh, cooperation between our two uh, between our two nations. Great. Uh, thank you, Larry. Excellent uh, point. Exactly. I think that... that uh, you know, the, we're now experienced the, the uh, uh, you know, COVID crisis. We, we haven't experienced the third world war, but we have experienced the world virus war. We, we are, we are trying to get out of that crisis, but I think what, what's going to re- revive, replenish and re- revigorate the world economy and, uh, and the economy that we need the new players. And then you're absolutely right. You know, we, we can have the development bank and particularly the World Bank, AIB. ADB, AFDB, and all those development banks taking an alliance together and work together, have a summit of the development banks. And as you said, also having the private sector, capital markets join that, probably can be a new forces in, you know, a new model for the uh, post-pandemic uh, uh, era. Uh, absolutely. This is really uh, great ideas. And I think China and U.S. are the two key players that we should really, plus EU, we should uh, uh, all work together on that. Uh, this is really great. Now, uh, I, I'd like to maybe shift the subject a little bit on, on China now, U.S.-China relation. I mean, during your visit to CCG in 2019, uh, you talked about uh, the chan- changes are taking place in China, that the history of the first half century of the 21st century revolution is likely to be substantially history of what happens in China and how that affects this uh, fifth of the humanity. And China's transformation rise are likely to impact the balance of power and result in the uh, uh, he hit his trap actually. So uh, I had also Graham Allison uh, here at the dialogue. He, he talked about uh, uh, you know he hit his trap, and also I had uh, 
uh, Joseph and I, we, we talked together, Tony Satch, you know, we talked to a number of uh, my former Harvard professors. So basically, they, they, they don't see the uh, uh, need for, for, for decouple, and then they don't think the cold war is appropriate, but they all agree, you know, there's probably we're getting to some kind of a, a competition cooperation, but still, you know, cooperation can still be uh, uh, maintained and, and some kind of partnership. So what do you think about the U.S.-China relation? You know, in the, in the, in the post pandemic era, how we can really, uh, you know, get along and while managing the risk, uh, as uh, Martin Wolf told me, you know, uh, so, so, so what, what do you think, uh, you know, how can we really get the U.S. China relation forward in a manageable uh, manner? Henry, I've, I've compared the U.S. China relationship to two individuals who have relatively little in common and who have substantial feelings of discomfort and distrust with respect to each other, who share a lifeboat with two oars in a turbulent sea a long way from the shore. And they may be right in their grievances with respect to each other, They may be right in their aspirations as to who should be in charge. But the reality is that unless they row relatively in unison for quite a long time without the distractions of anger and conflict, they are not going to make it to the shore. And that is how I think the United States and China need to understand um, each other. I find that much of the discussion, you know, should we have cooperation? Should we have engagement with competition? Should we have strategic uh, engagement? Should we have cooperation, uh, selective cooperation? There's a war on to define a phrase that captures what we're going to have. But I think ultimately we need to decide what it is that we want that is realistic to have. I don't think it is realistic for China to aspire to displace the United States as the world's leading economic power. I don't think it is realistic for China to aspire to a vision of the Asian continent in which the United States is not an active economic, political, and security participant. At the same time, I don't think it is realistic for the United States to aspire to the kind of unipolar hegemonic world that many in the United States talked about after the Berlin Wall fell. I think China has too many achievements and has done too much for that to be a realistic American aspiration. And I think we in the United States, after almost a century 
when it was otherwise, need to accommodate ourselves to the fact that we are not going to be the world's largest and completely dominant economy forever. And so we need to define a vision in which we both prosper, we both respect each other's ability to run our systems internally as uh, we see uh, fit, but we both agree on international rules of the road where there is interaction, whether it is competition between companies, whether it is uh, rules with respect to the deployment of uh, troops and weapons, whether it is understandings with uh, respect uh, to external uh, countries. And so I think that is what we need to try to um, work out together. And it will be an immense diplomatic uh, challenge. But I think that it is important that we start from a sense of what we ultimately want to achieve and go from there to a range of specific approaches rather than, as is too often the case, um, a strategy is conflated with a wish list. And there's a listing of, we want this to be different about trade and we want that to be uh, different uh, in uh, some other, uh, in uh, some other uh, way. I think both of our countries and I guess this would be perhaps my last point, it seems to me that we in the United States face very profound internal challenges. Um, too many of our middle-class people, our ordinary citizens, feel that our society doesn't work well for them. At the same time, China faces the profound challenges that I described a few minutes ago. And it seems to me that it's in both of our interests to, for us both to conduct our relationship in the next years in ways that allow us each to renew our societies domestically. You know, there are some in China, let me be frank, uh, there are articles in the Global Times suggesting that the United States is in decline and that this is China's moment when China has to move and take advantage of the situation. If the United States perceives that that is the broad strategy China is following, we will have no choice but to respond in very strong and vigorous ways. Equally, if China perceives that the United States has an objective 
of uh, containment or of regime change or of bringing about fundamental changes in the nature of internal Chinese society, that is something that you're not going to be able uh, to accept. And so it seems to me that the provision of strategic reassurance, not just in words, but in deeds, needs to be an important aspect of uh, the dialogues that take place um, between our uh, between our leaders. Uh, yes, uh, th- thank you, <laughs> Larry. Ex- excellent point. Uh, you're right. You know, uh, I think the Sino-U.S. relations are a really complicated one, and 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 we are now being the two largest economy. We we have a more responsibility uh, to really work together. And I think we should not be hijacked by the uh, you know populism, nationalism about both countries. And you also very uh, uh, you know correct to point out that uh, uh, you know that the U.S. has the, the domestic issues uh, like the, the middle class was uh, you know stagnated for the last thirty years with zero uh, public increase, and then now even for the you know top one percent, the richest uh, you know probably the wealth is equal to forty percent of the mass population, or even the top, top ten. Uh, richest, uh, you know, their their value has gone up tremendously uh, during the pandemic time, uh, even. So, so that is really an issue. Also, China, you know, we have this, uh, 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 you know, population uh, decline. We have this uh, uh, also regional disparity. We have, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know how we can really handle this uh, uh, gigantic <laughs> big country, one point four billion people. It's all challenges to 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 Chinese government and. Uh, I think to, to 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 U.S. government as well for the domestic issues. So I'm glad to see actually G20 has proposed this global minimum corporate tax, so that you know all the multinational if they made money then they maybe bet you know better to repatriate back to to their home country and then uh, you know Rust Belt or Western state so that they do not you know the the, the, the those groups that not benefit from globalization do not voting out. Uh, the the anti globalization anti China politician that filled with the in in the Congress to passing all kind of bills uh, uh, bashing China. For example, there are already 650 Chinese companies now on the American entity list. Where Chinese government even passed a new entity law regulation, we haven't you know sanctioned any U.S. companies. So there's a lot of things China was basically responding. China was trying to uh, lift 800 million people out of poverty. To prevent, uh, you know, increasing the middle class rather than shrinking or stagnation of middle class. So maybe we, you know, I mean, the, the two countries should find uh, concentrate on solving their domestic issues rather than, you know, put the nationalism, on, uh, populism on each other, blame each other, uh, and China become a scapegoat sometime. So, so what do you think? Uh, you know how how we can, uh, you know, work on so, that? I agree with you, but in all honesty, Henry, I, I found you a bit selective in the way you framed okay. uh, the issue. <laughs> you emphasized ways in which the United States might scapegoat or demonize China. And I think I recognized that there were those risks. But I think it would be helpful for you and my Chinese friends to recognize that there have also been occasions on which China has engaged in 
attempts to subvert democratic countries in their homelands, not Mm -hmm. in uh, China, in which China has used ostensibly private companies as tools of statecraft to pursue uh, security uh, objectives. There have been rhetoric from China. Um, You know, uh, you've never said anything that sounds like a wolf warrior diplomat, but many in China, including people at very senior levels, have engaged in wolf warrior diplomacy. And it's a little bit hard for us to look past that. And China is a place that is very capable of disciplining those who speak inappropriately. And wolf warrior diplomats have often spoken at very substantial length and been enabled to repeat their positions on multiple occasions in ways that make it seem like those are the real positions of the Chinese government. So I am happy to join you in the belief that populist nationalism is a toxin that both of our countries need uh, to work hard to contain. But I'm not prepared to accept your statement or your implication that somehow this is an American problem without being a Chinese problem. I think we, we, we need to really look at both the domestic situation, but I think, but from trade point of view, maybe let's talk about trade. You know, we still haven't seen the trade uh, uh, lifting, you know, the, the, the sanction posed by uh, President Trump is still on. And uh, now one year after uh, President Biden in the office, uh, uh, this uh, tariff is still on. And recently we see a nine, 140 congressmen, you know, asking to, uh, you know, get more uh, uh, exam- uh, uh, more uh, uh, baby exceptions for the, uh, the tariff that applied to the uh, American companies, so that they can expand uh, the, the scope of uh, exempt those t- uh, tariff. So, 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 what do you Henry, think about you that, followed, you know? Henry? You follow things very closely. China made a variety of promises with respect to its level of purchases. Have those commitments been met? you know they have not been met. So I think when we think about the tariffs, and I'm someone who believes that we need to engage in economic diplomacy and find a new and much more sensible framework than the one that was negotiated several years ago. But I'm not going to sit here and let you suggest somehow that the Mm -hmm. United States is doing wrong by maintaining the tariffs without acknowledging that China has completely failed to keep the agreement. Now, I I don't think that agreement is a very sensible agreement in the current context. And so I'd like to see something new negotiated. But in all honesty, I don't think it's reasonable for you to suggest that the United States should simply unilaterally remove the tariffs without China making any change in a variety of its businesses that um, are subjects of complaint. 
I mean, let me let me say something um, candidly to you and to my Chinese friends. When I was in government and I would meet with business officials, I would say, you know, they would say, it's completely unfair when we try to do business in China. And I would say, I'm happy to pursue that issue with the Chinese government. Can you explain it to me? And they would say, no, I can't explain it to you because if you raise the issue with the Chinese government, they will retaliate against us and our situation will get much worse. And I've had that experience with many, many, many American businesses. Now, I understand and I'm sure that there are Chinese businesses that experience unfairness in the United States. But I am going to insist that if we're serious about trying to find solutions together and trying to find a basis for cooperation, that I won't allow any sense that somehow the United States has been the one that's broken the agreements or broken the rules or done the wrong thing, and China is an aggrieved innocent. I'm not going to allow that idea to stand. And I think I would say to my Chinese friends that um, when I was, when I visited China for the first time as a tourist in 1979, China was a very poor country. When I visited China in 1991 as the chief economist of the World Bank, China was a developing but still poor country. When I had the great privilege of meeting with, meeting for five hours with uh, Premier Zhu Ranji at a very delicate moment in the discussions with respect to China's joining the WTO in 1999, China was an emerging uh, market that could rely on the rest of the world to understand its special problems. I think China needs to recognize that now, with an economy that has grown sixfold since uh, the year 2000, that the situation is very different. And China can't just be asking for what others do, but it needs to be responsive to uh, the the needs of others. And I'm not sure that that idea, I know you understand it very well, Henry, but I'm not sure that that idea is always present in all of the discussions of economic diplomacy that we have. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Uh, uh, thank you, uh, uh, Larry. I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think we, we need to need on both sides. Uh, I was actually talking to uh, uh, Terry Bernstein, the former uh, U.S. ambassador to China, just about uh, uh, two weeks ago at a closed-door uh, meeting with the Heritage Foundation there. And actually, he, met, he was telling me that actually the, the agriculture purchase and uh, uh, also uh, other uh, uh, be, soil being and uh, uh, the, 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 the poultry, pork, has all hit a record high. I, I understand maybe during the pandemic, 
uh, the first one wasn't really a satisfactory one, but but it's actually is they still made all the historical high uh, on that. So so they're trying. <laughs> yes, a historical high, but no, not agreement with what was committed. Yeah, and yeah. so I understand that the world has changed, and that when those commitments were made, nobody understood the pandemic. But I think we have to enter into the conversation from the perspective of uh, compromise and win-win, not from yeah. the perspective of uh, vilification. Yeah. Now. Uh- so, so maybe um, uh, my uh, the last question is that uh, you are the president. Uh, you were the president of Harvard, you know, very famously. I mean, you were the youngest uh, uh, Harvard professor at age of twenty eight, a full professor. It was really making a history there. I remember, you know, uh, went to your lecture in the, at Harvard campus uh, at, at that time as well. So, so, but. What do you see the, the, the student exchanges between China and U.S.? Now, China has actually, even though we have a lot of dispute and differences, China is now the largest student-sending country to the United States. We have 400,000 students uh, currently studying in the U.S. And actually, uh, uh, the, the, the U.S. embassy, uh, uh, the chief, you know, Charles Affairs, he told me that just in three months of last year, you know, June, July, August, the U.S. embassy has issued 80,000 85,000 visas for the Chinese students to go to the United States. So, so you, you see the, the, you know, China, of course, uh, uh, still sees U.S. university as a, as a magnetic for the, for the talent attracting. Also recently, the government has relaxed uh, also visas for the student uh, to stay. But, uh, but what do you, what do you th- see the, uh, the, uh, the, the exchanges as, you know, talent, uh, student exchanges for, for the both countries? But we also see, uh, for example, uh, the MIT professor uh, Gang Chen has been uh, uh, charged by uh, FBI and now recently uh, uh, discharged by, by by the court. So 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 this kind of a uh, you know China initiative that uh, made you know this uh, ad- atmosphere really tight. Uh, it's not good for the scientific community, professor, uh, academic exchanges, uh, even for think tank. You know. So how do you see this? Uh, Continually, uh, people to people exchange, especially among young people and student and, and academic exchanges. And also this kind of China initiative really not helping, uh, from, from what we can see here. Thank you for asking that, um, uh, that question. Um, during my time as president of Harvard, I worked very hard to promote more exchange between the United States and China. I was very eager to see us welcome more Chinese students, both as undergraduate students at Harvard, as visiting students at Harvard, and for more Chinese citizens to come to our graduate schools. I tried to lay the foundation that has moved forward over time towards more distance education from Harvard that so that people could benefit from the Harvard experience even when they couldn't come. And I tried to open Harvard offices and encourage as many students as possible to study uh, at Har- study in China. I have each year um, before COVID made a visit to Beijing 
for the purpose of speaking to the Schwartzman Scholars Program, because I have thought that that kind of exchange is enormously valuable in promoting understanding between uh, the United States and uh, China. I have welcomed postdocs uh, from uh, China and pre-docs from China to work in my research group. I have a very fine one uh, who has graduated from Beijing University this year. So I'm a huge believer in these positive exchanges. But there do have to be some ground rules. And there have been excesses on our side that I think took the form of uh, racial prejudice, really. And I think that's deplorable. But I think there also have been activities of Confucius Institutes. There have also been activities in which students functioned as spies in ways that were quite problematic. Um, And occasions in which Chinese students have said they don't feel like they can fully participate in the di- in a dialogue in the Harvard classroom because others from China will be in that classroom as well. And if they say things that are inappropriate, it will be reported back to the authorities and there might be consequences for their families. So I very much want to see much more interaction and uh, exchange. But I think we do need to have some common understandings um, that surround uh, that, uh, that kind of exchange. And yes, there have been problematic things that have happened in the, in the United States. You mentioned one with respect to the MIT professor. But in the United States, in Australia, in other countries, there have also been things that were done that were problematic um, by Chinese uh, visitors. And so I think we need in a spirit of cooperation to make this work, because ultimately both countries are going to do better if there's more exchange. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, you know, Larry. And uh, so we actually also uh, announced your, uh, you know, speaking uh, with CCG today. So we actually received some uh, question from, from uh, media as well. We have, uh, we selected one uh, question from the China News Service, which is one of the biggest uh, media here. Uh, they they posed uh, two questions. First is that U.S.-China trade volume hits record high in 2021. Uh, despite trade war, trade between China and the United States has become more frequent. So what's your view on this? And second, the key word that the U.S. side often use for the current U.S.-China relationship is competition. Do, do you agree with? And what's your keyword for the future development of U.S.-China relationship? <laughs> so, so that that's uh, one of the media questions. If, if I you... had to use one word, I think the word I would use is coopetition to capture okay. the idea that there's both going to be competition and there's going to need to be areas of cooperation. I'm glad to see that the level of trade has expanded but we need to make sure that that trade takes place on a appropriate and uh, level playing field. And we need to make sure that commitments are met. 
in a reciprocal way. That doesn't mean that agreements don't need to be renegotiated as unexpected circumstances take place, but there does need to be a uh, notion of uh, reciprocity. Great. So, 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 uh, really, uh, uh, thank you uh, so much, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Summers. And uh, we actually, my staff was mentioned to me, we had 150,000 people, uh, you know, from our network watching this online. And uh, so, so we had actually covered quite a, quite a lot of field and, uh, you know, you know, very uh, constructive, but also frank discussion. I think you, you have a, uh, you know, analyze the global economy. Uh, what are the multilateralism to be strengthened, and what are the, uh, you know, the key uh, uh, improvement that China, U.S. can make, and of course also how we can uh, really confront the, the 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 global challenges like climate change and all those uh, pandemic. And uh, so, so I think you give us again, you know, as good as you had done, uh, you know, three years ago at the CCG, all these excellent points that have been making. Of course, we we have differences, of, uh, and we. We need to have a more dialogue. I mean, that's where we have set up this dialogue. Uh, we have, all, uh, you know, in the last year, we have already 20, uh, you know, prominent p- people, actually, opinion leaders have all gone through here. So, so it's really a, a great uh, uh, learning exchange uh, process. So perhaps uh, in the end, what's your, uh, you know, closing remark and maybe what's your hope for, for, for the future? We really hope you can come to visit China again, uh, visit CCG and, uh, uh, so, so your uh, final remarks, uh, uh, P- Professor Summers, please. Henry, my first remark is to thank you for a very constructive, generous, and sharp yet warm uh, dialogue that we've been able to have. And I very much enjoyed it and learned from it and will very much want to keep engaged uh, with uh the uh, CCG um, as we uh, go forward. Second, I would say that almost always communication is better than non-communication. And I hope that the extent of communication between our two countries can uh, be increased. I think that one crucial aspect of successful diplomacy is what might be called strategic empathy. And too often in discussions between the United States and China, Americans make their points about what's wrong in China, and China makes their points about what's wrong in America, and nobody really tries to think about how a more constructive relationship can develop. And my hope would be that that can be a greater focus going forward. I hope that my center at Harvard and think tanks that I'm associated with um, in Washington, the Center for Global Development, can have more cooperation with you going forward uh, so that in uh, these areas, we can have a stronger relationship. Excellent. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Larry. Actually, you you put a very, very, uh, you know, keyword, you know, strategic empathy. You know, we really need to understand each other, communicate, dialogue, and that's also the spirit of the CCG. We want to be a platform of dialogue, and we, we hope that uh, we can have a, a better understanding so we can avoid uh, uh, misunderstanding as much as we can. So, so uh, Professor <laughs> Laurie Summers, thank you again for your late evening and for your 
speaking to us. We really appreciate it. We hope to see you again. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.